Hey, it's Steve Balton. You're listening to My Turning Point. And this week, Sage Bhava and I have an incredible conversation for you with Moby. Moby is one of the smartest guys in music. It is always a joy to talk to him. I've had so many great chats with him over the years. And this conversation is no different. There was an instant kinship between him and fellow vegan, Sage. And we discussed everything from spirituality and philosophy to music. So hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it's it's hard to feel good about the world, but I'm glad in your little micro world that things are fine. I know exactly even what though, you mean, though. Yeah, uh, it, it, even with that 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 attendant guilt, where I'm like, oh boy, yeah, things are things are good. Selfishly, I mean, again, but there's also there's age and mortality, and you know as we get to our advanced age you and me i mean i think am i older than you yes i believe you are how old are you now 57 you are okay um so you get to my advanced age. i was going to include you in the old guy club but i guess you're not there you can yet. include me that's okay okay but you get to these advanced age and you're like i'm granted 57 compared to a lot of people is not old old but nonetheless like over the last couple of years, people have started dying, you know, definitely exacerbated by the pandemic. But, um, you know, so again, there's that, that guilt around saying that things are okay. Well, before we come on to my story in regards to that, I want to introduce you to my co-writer and one of the favorite, my favorite singers in the history of the universe. This is Sage, who's been doing a lot of interviews with me of late. And she also, by the way, is a devout vegan who was just giving me a lot of shit. You guys are going to be like best friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a pleasure to meet you. Hello. Hi. So um, where, Sage, where can I find your, your voice on the internet machine? Well, I have... A lot of new music coming very soon, but my name is Sage, S-A-G-E, last name B-A-V-A, Baba, which I usually don't tell people where I got that, but you are the perfect person to, to share. Um, I wanted to choose a, a, a new last name, and I just thought of Baba, which acronym for Badass Vegan Advocate. So um, that's, that's my name, Sage Baba. Cool. There's actually um, my friend John Lewis just put out a book. He his his online persona is badass vegan. Love it. Um, I will look him up. Yeah, he's a six foot four black athlete. So clearly, you guys are not going to be confused for one another. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she's an amazing singer and great interviewer. But it's so funny because you were saying about the old guy club, dude. Six months ago, I put out a book. Came out October 25th. Sage was actually at the book release with several friends. Three days later, I found out I needed triple bypass surgery. Well, I'm very sorry, but I'm also glad that you're still here. I mean, like two of my no, friends. Dude, they said from I had the high- fastest recovery they've ever seen in the history of the surgery. I was home after four days, walking my dog after five. That's great. So, but um, it's just funny because, again, these things that you don't think of until you reach a certain age and you're like, wait, what the fuck? I still feel like I'm 25 mentally. 19, Sage will tell you. And, you know, you're like, wait, what is this shit happening now? Yeah, I mean, and sorry to use this as an opportunity to talk about veganism, but, like, especially cardiac health, like, Dean Ornish and, you know, some of these other vegan doctors have 
functionally cured cardiac issues just by putting people on like a whole foods, you know, organic plant-based diet. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I, I've heard it from her quite a bit. And yes, at least I, I'm getting better, you know, but so don't apologize for it because I, I'm aware of the health values, but it's interesting. I mean, this is, you know, let's jump onto the record and, and, you know, it's funny. I think, you know, you're one of the artists and you and I have talked about this so much over the years that really loves to go back and revisit material for you. How do these songs change when you bring new interpreters onto them and come back at them with a fresh perspective of, you know, again, now looking at it from the standpoint of a 57 year old, which is very different than when you write a song when you're in your twenties. Well, that's one of the, I mean, apart from the fact that just simply and possibly selfishly, I love going back and, you know, maybe it's even narcissism on my part, like revisiting older songs and reworking them. Like it's just, it's such a delightful process. Like it's so much fun and so creatively satisfying, but especially songs that were, you know, written, recorded 20 some odd years ago, there's, and this can sound very pretentious and I apologize, but there's the Proustian component of like revisiting the past. And one of, I think the most, call it like the, the most viable aspects of nostalgia or revisiting the past of getting older is having a expanded basis of comparison, having a broader perspective. And there is one aspect to that, which is quite depressing <laughs> apart from just getting older and being old. But, um, but in looking back at these songs, there was this recurring motif of being confronted with cultural optimism. And I don't want to be a super cranky old guy, but like, if you remember like the mid nineties, the late nineties, even the early two thousands, there was so much optimism, you know, especially in the nineties, like Bill Clinton was president, our climate change book writing friend, Al Gore was vice president. The internet was going to be this force for communication and democracy Russia was talking about joining the European community. China was enacting democratic reforms. Uh, there was no such thing as pandemics. There was no such thing as war was largely disappearing. Like the world was so optimistic. And sorry for being such a bummer, but like that optimism for most people seems to have largely disappeared. And it's really kind of like, a bit depressing being nostalgic for that period of, you know, multifaceted optimism. Interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but it's funny then for you, when you go back and revisit this material, do you then, does it make you, I don't know, nostalgic or does it also, I'm just thinking about this. And it's funny because I do feel like though, there still is a lot of good, you know? So I feel like, again, there still is reason to be optimistic today. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. It's like a lot of spiritual practices do sort of stress the importance of putting your attention, you know, like, like not letting loud negative ideas crowd out 
you know, quieter, optimistic, hopeful ideas, you know, and I definitely, you know, like I can be very guilty of, you know, of letting the negative overwhelm the positive. And there, you're right. There are a lot of really very positive things. And I was talking about this with Cory Booker a while ago. Um, sorry for the name dropping, but Corey's at present, my only friend in the Senate. Um, and we it's me by one. How, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess Maria Cantwell in Washington state, she's, you know, a, a friendly acquaintance, but nonetheless, we were talking about how one of the only things humans are better at than causing problems is fixing problems. You know, you look at human history and like, boy, humans are so well accomplished at creating problems, but then they're really good at also fixing those same problems. So the hope is all of the problems that we're facing that humans have created somehow maybe once people are confronted with the consequences of these problems, maybe we'll figure out a way to actually, you know, address them and solve them and have some sort of like utopian Star Trek future as opposed to like a dystopian Mad Max future. Okay. I'd love to ask about that future and where you think music and AI will intertwine and if you're excited about it or if you're terrified about it or. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I still don't fully know how AI is defined. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I'm sure as a fellow musician, you understand, like we've been using intelligent, predictive algorithms and software for a very long time. Like when you quantize a MIDI part, like that's sort of AI. You know, like if I put some light uh, melodyne tuning on background vocals, isn't that AI? Because you're sort of asking the, the tech to interpret. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out like, where does at this point, like old fashioned predictive interpretive algorithm tech end and where does AI start? So I'm waiting for some, I, uh, and I'm sure there's a, a pretty simple answer that I'm just not smart enough to figure out. Um, but, you know, given like, especially as you probably both know, there was a song released a couple days ago that was a new Drake and The Weeknd song. Turns out it was not. It was a song 100% created by AI, but it was indistinguishable from a new Drake Weekend song. And, and what it's personally my thought is AI is going to be really good at creating generic auto-tuned pop music. Because up until recently, so many of the pop producers, like their goal has been to create generic auto-tuned performances. You know, their goal has been to take people's vocals and, you know, do everything in their power to make the vocals sound technically perfect. And that's what AI is good at. So if I was a pop producer, I'd be scared, you know? Um, but I, and maybe this is just, because I'm an old guy, but like, I do sort of feel like what AI will never do, at least not for a very long time is create the authentic vulnerability 
of a Leonard Cohen. Or like on my last record with Deutsche Grammophone, I had a duet with Mark Lanigan and Chris Christopherson. And like, I don't think AI can do that. Like to create vulnerability, to create that sort of, you know, the rough expression of the human condition. Um, so if I was a generic pop producer, I'd be scared. But if you're Rick Rubin looking to make a record with Chris Christopherson, I wouldn't be too worried. I mean, I agree with you. It's funny. That, that's the one thing you can't recreate is soul. That can't be done, you know, AI or, or mechanically. At least not yet. I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe at some point when quantum computing becomes more viable, we will no longer be able to distinguish real human expression from quantum computing-fueled AI expression. But for now... I do think those, you know, vulnerable, emotional, idiosyncratic human performances, like AI can't touch that. So I'm not, you know, it, it can touch auto-tuned pop performances, but it can't touch Chris Christopherson singing into a microphone. So for you, what is the song that brings you closest to the universe? Is there one song for you um, and then one from someone else? Because again, music oh, can be way, such a spiritual thing. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out, is someone... That brings you closest it, to the universe. So, yes. So as far as like a universal song, what a wonderful question. Um, it's actually as boy, much... Wait, I, I always give credit where credit is due. And it's actually for a project Sage and I are working on together. So she gets 100% credit as well. Okay, well, it's a wonderful question. Um, and boy, oh boy... My answer is going to be so cliched, but it's honest. And uh, I should probably think of something much less cliched, but there is an updated version of Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And because I wasn't aware of this, there are lots of versions of Hallelujah. And for each version, he rewrote the words, like he added new verses. And there's one version that I have, which I think is more recent. Like it's even got some electronic elements in it. And there's one last verse about standing before the Lord of Song. And to me, it's one of the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful verses anyone has ever written. And so that to me is that's my that's my connection like when i'm if i'm in my kitchen and i have spotify on shuffle and that comes up i have to stop what i'm doing and listen and tears come to my eyes and it's just it's so special and it makes me a little bit sad because that's not the version most people are aware of that makes me so happy that you said that song and that line specifically i i'm playing with or we're playing with making that potentially the the name of the book or just the name of a big session, but the Lord of song that shook me. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's an, it's, it's like, for example, I, I somehow have it. In fact, while we're talking, let me look it up on my old Spotify machine um, to see which album it's from. Okay. There you are. Not Suzanne. Um, okay. So it's, on various positions is the album. 
which came out in 1984 and has a version of Hallelujah on it that, with some synthesizers and stuff, but it's a, it's a really special, mm. like it's, because some of the other versions of Hallelujah, uh, they're beautiful, but they can go a little bit, um, there's a, there sometimes is a, an irony or a cynicism to them, just a little bit. And this version, it's not there. Like this version, which is ironic because it has synthesizers on it, but it's, there's a, there's an, just an authenticity to it that I really love. Yeah, I love to hear your interpretation of the Lord of Song. To me, it's clear in my interpretation and feeling of what it is, is that's, he was the channel, the antenna, and he's the Lord of Song. It's where he received the songs, and that's a big focus on this project. Um, and we'd love to hear if you have that same connection to being the antenna for the Lord of Song or whatever you call well, it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've had a very strange spiritual background. Um, you know, I, my mom was a sort of wonderful spiritual dilettante where she was into the I Ching and um, tarot cards and Krishnamurti. But, you know, my grandfather worked on wall street and taught Sunday school at a Presbyterian church in Connecticut. Um, and then when I was in high school, I had a huge crush on a woman who was a Taoist. So I, I tried to become a Taoist and I still love Taoism and then had a weird period of being a very strict Kierkegaardian Christian. And I've just been all over the place. Like there isn't really a spiritual tradition. I haven't, played around with apart from maybe Scientology. So uh, then about 15 years ago, I got sober. And part of sobriety for me was doing the 12 steps. And the third step is the most challenging of the steps as far as I'm concerned. It says made a conscious or made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood God. And that's comprehensive like your life and your will that's all we have and it said the care of god as we understood god and i really wrestled with this and the way i finally made sense of it was to recognize that the god of my understanding is a god that i cannot understand you know i don't know who god is i don't know what god is you know in a universe that's 15 billion years old comprised of a trillion galaxies how can any of us know who or what God is? And the response to that, like, obviously, like, a lot of people have responded to that fact, like our separation from the divine, whatever the divine might be. I mean, you could even posit that in the beginning of Genesis, you know, when human beings are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, it's an allegory for the separation of humanity from the divine. And so the response to that separation, you know, the separation from the divine is, can be nihilism. It can be delusion. It can be materialism. It can be degeneracy. Like everybody wrestles with this separation in the same way. And when I did this third step in the 12 steps, I realized, Oh, I don't know who or what God is. I don't know who or what the Lord of song is, but what better use of a life is there than to try and, 
get closer to the divine and to try and understand the divine. So that's the, so my idea of the Lord of Song is whatever the divine might be and trying as humans to just understand it a little better and move a little bit closer to it. That's beautiful. So it's interesting for you. I agree with you in terms of, you know, life and will is all that we have. So it's funny for you. I also think though that, you know, again, going back to the conversation we started with being older, you do open yourself, your mind up so much more as you get older. So it's interesting. A lot of this stuff, do you feel like you could have embraced it when you were younger? Or is it something that comes with as you get older, you just realize that you don't actually know shit? Because of course, I don't know if you were like me, but as a 20-something, I was a freaking idiot who thought he knew everything in the world and literally knew nothing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's funny, it, it makes me think of, like, there's, oh, I forget where I was reading this, like, I've never had a child and I've certainly never been a woman breastfeeding a child, but like apparently the process of weaning a child off of breast milk is very upsetting and very, and the, the child screams because the, the baby has decided breast milk is the way to be happy, is the way to feel connections, the way to stay alive and trying to separate the baby from the breast milk. I guess it's a very difficult process for mothers and it in a very expanded way makes me think of what you just said is like how painful the process is of being disabused of all of the ways we thought we were right you know like i really thought when i was growing up like the answer to happiness was some facet of cultural materialism i was like okay if I get enough validation as a musician, if I have enough money to pay the rent, if I have the right relationship, if I live in the right city, if I read the right books and see the right movies and go to the right parties and have the right friends, and then everything's going to be fine. And I don't want to anthropomorphize the universe, but the universe kind of said, no, no, it's not any of those things. And so you could almost say, Steve, to your point is like, as we get older, possibility and potential are taken away from us in order to show us how much more potential there actually is. Like, it's kind of like the platonic idea of leaving the cave. Like, the, the universe doesn't want us to stay in the cave. The universe doesn't want us to stay ignorant. But leaving behind the comfort of ignorance is excruciating. And you don't want to go through it but it's the only way to not be trapped by that, that weird materialism of just give me the right house and the right relationship and the right validation and everything will be fine. Because as we know, that's never the case. Well, I want to let Sage jump in in one second, but it's interesting. Do you find it excruciating? Because I did not at all. I find that now as I'm older and as Sage and I discuss frequently, to me, and also I've gone through a lot of loss. I've lost both parents, you know, as we all do when we get older. But it's the little things that make me immensely happy. But learning that lesson and the and devaluing, well, actually, I never really valued material things. I was never into material things, but that's also because I grew up with money, so I never had to. But I think that, you know, again, just appreciating a deep conversation sitting there 
is so much. And again, I've like you done everything. I've partied at Prince's house, seen Led Zeppelin, everything, but it's like the little moments. So it's interesting. I actually find it the opposite and I didn't find it excruciating at all. I found it to be the most rewarding thing in the world. Oh, ultimately I agree with you. It is incredibly rewarding, but the, how excruciating it is like, you know, when it stops working, you know, like, cause I really believed to my great shame that fame was going to fix things that, you know, that having, you know, like standing on stage and being on tour and, you know, all sorts of all the stuff that comes along with that. Like, I just thought like that was going to fix things like that. And so when I say materialism, it's both, I say conventional materialism, but also just the idea of external things, you know, external validation, external, even relationships, um, what have you. I found it to be very painful realizing that ultimately there's nothing wrong with fame. There's nothing wrong with accolades. There's nothing wrong with red carpet events and parties as long as you don't expect them to fit or, or, or fix spiritual problems. And my, my mistake was I absolutely did. I thought they were going to like sort of protect me from the worst parts of the human condition. Well, all right, Sage, you're going to finish this off in a second, but this is fucking fascinating. So, because it's interesting you say this, but I'm doing right now confidentially, but you and I have talked about in the past, um, the authorized bio of Chris Cornell, who I know you were friends with and a big fan of as well. But it's so interesting because I've thought about this so much. That's every musician. Again, Courtney Love mm -hmm. and I have been friends for years and we talked about this. If you're Kurt Cobain and you grow up in Aberdeen, Washington, and you are miserable and you're an outcast, you think the only thing in this world that's going to save you is becoming a rock star and having that connection and adoration, then you find out that not only does it not save you, in many respects, it makes you worse because the one thing that you held on to as redemption no longer is a viable option. It's not a surprise that you blow your fucking brains out with a shotgun. So it's interesting that you say that, but I think that every musician goes through that because I think every musician, you know, and Sage as a musician, you can attest to this, there's a certain level of um, feeling alienated for whatever the yeah. reason it is. And so you think that this is going to be the thing that connects you. I mean, it's that idea that, you know, that I think almost every human being has that like, when you get to a certain point, everything's going to be okay. And everything's going to be great. And so when you're a musician, like when I was growing up, I was like, Oh, if I'm ever standing on stage in front of an audience and they, they like my music, like, that that will be i will have arrived you know if i'm ever you know if i ever have a record deal and and you you never think that these things are possible the same way the majority of people on the planet probably think oh if i win the lottery everything's going to be fine oh if only i had a movie star boyfriend or girlfriend everything's going to be fine oh if only this and for the vast majority of people they won't get there and so they can always hold on to that idea that like, well, if I only, if I could, you know, if I had the right sort of existential portfolio, I would fix it. You know, this would be, I'd be better. But like, to your point, the weird thing about becoming a public figure musician is you get everything and you get more than you wanted. And I'm not complaining or looking for sympathy, but like you're given more than you ever thought you'd ever have. 
and the happiness doesn't follow. You know, if anything, you're left with what you're describing is that sort of that fear and that frustration of like, oh, no, I spent my whole life working to get to this place. And now I'm in this place. And what's next? Because this didn't work. And for me, it had to be like bottoming it out as bottoming out as an alcoholic and drug addict and learning to find joy in incredibly simple things, you know, animals, nature science, music for the sake of music and not necessarily the commercial aspects of it. Like it's, uh, that's what I mean about the pain, being broken from those beliefs and assumptions because you then have to replace them with something else and that can be super challenging. So fascinating as always. I want to let Sage finish off because she's honestly smarter than me and you know, you guys have that musical connection. So jump in. Well, I love what you just said, and something I was thinking a lot about yesterday is this idea of coming back to self. And one of my favorite quotes is, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are, young, Carl Young. Um, and I was reading an interview you had that I loved what you said about our connection to animals and how animals are the divine, and we have just severed that. And anytime we abuse that, it's just exclaiming our separation from it um and my question is i'm curious where you want to go where you think society should be going um in reference back to the ai question i think to me it's just furthering that separation because it's feeding the wolf of algorithm the wolf of otherness from nature and and connection to true connection to self oh, yeah. um yeah i mean I, I couldn't agree more um i think you're absolutely right and the Jungian aspect is really interesting um so at the risk of sounding even more pretentious than i than i already do in the beginning of the pandemic i went back and tried to reread a bunch of the sort of the philosophy that I'd read in college uh, or, you know, everybody from Aldous Huxley to Young to Spinoza to Husserl, et cetera, just going back and like re reacquainting myself with a lot of stuff that I'd read a long time ago. And the most interesting aspect of everything I read, because a lot of it, when you put it in context, doesn't really hold up too well. Like the phenomenologists, I really appreciated, um, but it was the Jungian idea of the shadow self. And because everybody knows, everyone's heard this idea that the shadow self, the Jungian shadow self. And traditionally, I feel like most people interpret it to be like the Marilyn Manson self, the Trent Reznor self, the dark, and I'm not criticizing either one of them, but like it, people think of the shadow self as being dark and scary and libidinous and vicious. And I had this sort of realization that for me, the shadow self is uncomfortable. It's the awkward self. It's the self that says the wrong thing that, that was just like an awkward 13 year old adolescent and continues to be that like the shadow self is the, the part that we don't want to look at. It's not the violent part. It's not the sexy part. It's the, uncomfortable part 
And I really think to your point, like healing that, like reconnecting with that awkward self, the vulnerable self. And you're absolutely right that the danger, one of the biggest dangers in AI or almost every part of modern society is it doesn't reacquaint us with who we are. It gives us tools to further hide who we are, which is, <laughs> that can't be a good thing. Like, you know, like everybody I know, like these, these unrealistic standards of beauty that now, you know, like from face tuning to plastic surgery to it, it's so miserable and the suffering and the sickness that's created by it. And as opposed to that, what your point of reacquainting the self with the self, like integrating the self with the self. And that means accepting that we get older, accepting that we don't always look great, accepting that we are awkward human beings. But I, I personally believe that until humans figure this out, we're going to be just lost in the wilderness and eventually we might even end up destroying ourselves as a species because we're unwilling to heal this rift, to, to connect with that deeper idea of we are natural beings. We are, you know, not, we shouldn't aspire towards algorithm fueled perfection. We should aspire towards the best expression of the human condition that we can. Wow. Moby for president. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've done way too many drugs in the past for that to ever even be a possibility. <laughs> well, let's wrap up on the album. I mean, take us through, you know, what you were looking for in the tracks you did. It's so funny because we always go off on these deep conversations and then you add in Sage and it's like, well, the three of us can spend hours talking about the human condition, but we didn't really cover much of the album. So, you know, what were you looking for in the people you worked with on this? And what were you looking for in the songs that you revisited? Because we talked about the nostalgia aspect, but how do you choose the songs that you do? Well, part of it is the Neil Young criteria for choosing greatest hits. I remember reading an interview years ago where Neil Young had made a greatest hits album and the journalist was like, oh, how did you, how did you choose the songs? And he sort of said, oh, these are the songs people wanted to hear. And I thought that was so honest and simple and delightful. So with this record and the last one as well, half of the songs are songs that people have proven or shown me over the years that they want to hear. And I love them as well. Like, you know, Southside Extreme Ways, like these are, you know, you go on Spotify and like, wow, these are the ones that people have said they want to hear. So I'm thrilled to go back and revisit them. But it also gives me a chance to sneak in a bunch of weird, obscure other songs that people might not have heard. You know, I did that with the first record as well and ended up with what I think might be one of, I mean, I say this presumptuously and cluelessly, but the version of the song, The Lonely Night that I did with Mark Lanigan and Chris Christofferson, I'm like, you know, that's the whole reason that album exists is that specific song. The rest of it, the rest of the album I think is, is good but that song that no one had really heard before is to me like the raison d'etre of the record and you know so with this album like i love the big loud songs in the beginning of the record 
But as you get towards the end of the record, some of the quieter songs like Lady Blackbird doing Walk With Me and Danielle Ponder and her 89-year-old dad doing the song Run On or the song Last Night, like those are the ones that I'm hoping at least some people might listen to the album to the end to discover these otherwise really obscure songs. Okay, as a quick aside to this for a second, can you just give one sentence as to Sage as to why Neil Young is one of the greatest artists of all time? Because we were just discussing this the other day. Sage grew up on an animal rescue and is an encyclopedia of jazz, but there's a certain gap. So I was trying to explain to her why Neil Young is one of the most valued artists of all time. So, but I think she's going to listen to your opinion much more than mine. Uh, <laughs> well, from my, and it's also hard because you, now you can't listen to him on Spotify, but uh, from my perspective, and Neil Young, it's funny because when I was first studying music, my guitar teacher taught me music theory and had me play a lot of jazz, you know, like Larry Carlton and Weather Report and complicated stuff. And a huge part of my musical education was learning about simplicity, you know, the simplicity of old blues, the simplicity of punk rock but the simplicity of Neil Young. And it dovetails perfectly to what we're talking about of the vulnerability of human expression and the vulnerability of the human condition. Like some of his best songs, like Helpless, are three chords. That's it. Three major chords. D major, A major, G major. That's the entire song. And if you listen to his version, his voice is so imperfect, which makes it perfect. So I would say it's like my long-winded way to get to one sentence would be simplicity and vulnerability and honesty. And that's why I asked you perfectly said. All right, we're going to wrap up with two questions. One, what do you hope people take from this record when they hear it? Uh, honestly, the same thing I took from it when I was making it, which is, and I don't want to sound too much like a new age hippie, but like the idea of music as refuge, you know, I find now that, you know, I don't tour and I don't pay attention to record sales. To me, the, the utility of music, the function of music is emotional refuge. And sometimes that can be the clash. And sometimes it can be Nick Drake. Sometimes it can be Billie Holiday. And sometimes it can be Pantera. Like for everybody, it's different. But it's that idea of music as a world that you can step into and simply feel better than you did before you stepped into that musical world. And the second question, this goes back to the project that Sage was talking about that we're doing together. Why are you here? What is your purpose? Uh, my purpose, I don't, I, well, First off, I have no idea, but I hope it's to be a tiny, tiny small part of getting humans to stop making the miserable mistakes they're currently making regarding every, you know, like regarding animals, regarding the environment, regarding how they treat themselves, regarding how they treat each other. Like my hope is just like, get human to be again, like the tiniest part of moving the needle away from the current system and towards something that is more rational, more compassionate and more sustainable. <laughs> Amazing. 
Sage, anything else you want to ask? No, just a big, big thank you for all the work that you do. Well, thank you, and, and, and good luck with your, the, the project you guys are working on and with your music and also the Chris Cornell book. Like, Chris Cornell, what a, what a fascinating, damaged angel. I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, what a misunderstood. You know, it's funny. I was like, he would to me is one of the most, and you and I have talked about him, he's one of the most complex people I've ever met. And that's what made it so interesting was here was the guy who had all the ingredients of being the rock god. But at the same time, he never wanted it. Like, or he was never comfortable with it, I should say. I think he wanted it, but he was never comfortable with it. Well, so, because, uh, you know, I, I toured with them, and at the t- this was the height of their success. And to your point, he was the, the alternative music god, like, so handsome, selling millions of records, so enigmatic with the greatest rock voice. I mean, up there with like him, Robert Plant and David Bowie, like the three greatest rock voices, I think maybe Freddie Mercury, but like that voice, that charisma, that beauty. And he was such a delicate nerd. Like he was so like when we toured together, he was always so gentle and so quiet. And so always smiling, always like kind of like, had this sort of like childlike naivete to him and it couldn't have been further away from the way everybody perceived him. Like he was just such a gentle person. And um, so I'm, I'm thrilled that you're working on this. I'm excited to read it. Thank you. Well, yeah, I'll be in touch. I'm sure we'll want to talk more about it. Cause again, I know that you have a lot of great stories about him and we're a big fan. And then um, if it's all right, I'm going to, I'll go through Lily or Carlos, who I know is on here. There is one song of Sages that I just want to send you because just as a fan, to me, it's like, it's funny. We played it for the Madden brothers last week because they're friends and it's the coolest freaking song in the universe because it's great. so different. I'm, well, very excited to hear it. Thank cool. You. Anything you want to add? We didn't ask you about. Um, not, th- oh, well, I guess just, especially given your coronary issues, like really look into organic whole food, plant-based eating, especially like the superfoods, like black beans, chard, kale, broccoli, ginger, garlic, onions, like the ability to heal coronary disease with food is really, really remarkable. So I hope, I hope that that helps. Wait, I did lie because Sage is coming back into town on Saturday. Now, and it's funny because I did eat at Little Pine several times. What is your, what are your current favorite vegan restaurants in LA? Uh, I don't really, I, I have, as time has passed, I've just become much more of a healthy vegan. So I tend to eat at home and make my own food. Fair enough. Yeah. Unfortunately, restaurant food is delicious, but I wouldn't, there's not really such a, there are very few restaurants that are actually healthy, even in the vegan world. So Unfortunately, involves a lot of like whole organic foods that you make at home. Fair enough. All right, cool. Well, you as always, you've been very generous with your time, and it's just always so freaking fascinating. Love talking with you. What I think our first interview was like thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, like that's one of the functions of me being an old guy. But like, yeah, it's honestly always wonderful talking to you and Sage. It was really wonderful meeting you as well. Hey, it's Steve Walton. You've been listening to My Turning Point with co-host Sage Baba and special guest Moby. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 